Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello and welcome to the red box podcast in the times i'm matt chorley this week it's like deja vu all over again a government divided another ukip leadership election and joy of joys the edstone is back in the news in a moment we'll hear from this week's guest but first some housekeeping last week i asked you to review the podcast on iTunes and we've had uh, I think it's fair to say mixed results obviously modesty prevents me from uh, reading out the one saying great podcast the three topic styles works well expect nothing other than the best from the times quality journalism and debate that is often more often than not also hilarious obviously I won't read any of those out Um, I'd like to slightly take issue with the one that says nothing will make you feel uh, so much better about the maelstrom of British politics and the dulcet if deeply posh tones of Matt Chorley guiding you through I'm not sure uh, which podcast podcast you're listening to but if you think i'm the posh one i think you're listening to the wrong one uh, but finally a um, particular uh, special mention for lee andrew armstrong who said i prefer this podcast and the stewardship of the old host tim montgomery he's a center-right guy so even though the majority of guests would be center-left there would be a balance now it's just a bunch of center-left colonists and the center-left host it's a bit of a lefty loving which makes it almost unlistable sometimes uh, but not obviously all the time because you're uh, still listening lee lee i'm afraid i'm going to disappoint you again we had hoped to be joined by tim montgomery the prominent lever but he's today voted to remain in his sick bed. Get well soon, Tim. We'll hopefully have you back on the podcast very soon. But joining me for this week's Lefty Loving are Red Box reporter Hannah McGrath on the race or should that be pub crawl to be the next UKIP leader. Lucy Fisher, senior political correspondent for The Times, wonders how Labour can get back into the game. But first, Anne Treneman, former Times sketch writer and now theatre critic, on making the wrong political assumptions. At the moment, the whole debate about Trump v Clinton is predicated on the assumption that Trump is going to lose. It feels a bit like pre-Brexit to me. That feeling of superiority, and it must be said relief that the politically unthinkable is not going to happen. But it could, of course. It really could. And no matter what, we have to face the fact that what I will call, although I, can I just say, I'm, I'm disowning this word before I say it, Trumpization <laughs> of politics is here to stay. Because we have seen this popular anti-elite politics here with UKIP, the SNP, and Brexit. How can Westminster or Washington, elite from top to toe, deal with it? 
Now, and this is this is an interesting way of coming of it because the previous weeks when we've talked about the um, presidential race, it's all been sort of Hillary Clinton miles ahead, and you know, of course, she's going to win, and you know, everyone reassuring themselves that everything's going to be okay. But we've been here before, and things have been people have made the wrong assumptions before. And I think your point actually that, that is really interesting that the Trumpization of politics is, I mean, is here to say, it... regardless of whether or not he wins. Yes, and we could call it. Uh, in this country, we call it the Brexit. I got to, I'm going to have to stop this now, or else someone's <laughs> going to sort of start stoning me. But you know, the Brexitization. You know, so in other words, uh, the unthinkable happening. People whose views the elite don't agree with, the commentariat disagree with. Suddenly, not only sort of getting a point of view, but getting a vote and having their vote matter. And I think whatever else you have to say about uh, Trump, uh, and of course we've said quite a lot. He certainly has shown that his people, his point of view, matters. And he's speaking for, I mean, he's not that far behind in the polls. I think when I checked this morning, it was something like six percentage points, although I might be uh, corrected on that. And, you know, that's the, the margin of error is always a couple. So he's not that far behind. So it's not like there's a whole, and this is like with the entire really elite Republican Party, more or less against him. So he's speaking for a powerful part of the country. And I think that you'd be a fool to ignore that. Um, I'm sure Hillary will not be ignoring it if she does win. And I think in this country, we have to learn to deal with it. I just think this whole idea of, oh, it's all going to go away is uh, completely ridiculous. And part of that, it feels like the sort of cosy assumptions made by elites, whether that's politicians or commentators or whatever, hoping that that everything will go back to normal in their eyes, because that's reassuring, because they, they say and do things, and politicians say and do things which match that, and everything, you know, and that's that, it is the classic Westminster bubble or the, you know, yeah. Washington bubble or whatever, it's so detached from people, and that's what Trump or UKIP or Brexit has been has been charming with. Yes, and I think, I mean, someone should do a study how long it takes for the Twitter area, whatever you call it, the Twitterati, to get back to the core, their core sort of thing from when people speak, and then all of a sudden they have like a panic for about, I would say, a day. And then suddenly it's back to their agenda. And I just think that it really should not be back to their agenda, because what matters actually is how, um, in future, how you're going to bring it together. You know, how will we get this nationalism that is like the SMP, which of course is now forming its own elite, many would argue has been elite for some time, but how are you going to bring that into the mainstream? How are we going to have a country that's not completely split down the middle? And America is 4852, this country's 4852. You know, there's real issues there, I think. Lucy, do you think there's any sign of the political mm-hmm. elite reacting at the moment to that? I don't think there's enough, actually. What I would really like to see is politicians um, and people standing up for themselves more in the centre ground. I mean, the, this idea that, oh, you know, everyone you know, hates hates these liberal elites, everyone hates the Remainers. Well, I'm sorry, that was still 48% of uh, the public in the UK. But there's a sense now that, you know, the pendulum has swung before, I think, there were people in Britain who felt they weren't allowed to express their views without fear of being called racist or bigoted. But now the pendulum's gone so far the other way that people can't stand up for immigration, the economic argument, the cultural argument, without being called out of touch, you know, wealthy, oh, you know, you don't know what life is like. And actually, I think many ordinary people in, in ordinary jobs in, in all over the country, not just London or urban centres, um, also feel strongly. And I think the danger uh, is that... that the system is more fragile than 
than, than people think. And if you cede all that ground um, and allow yourself to be completely trodden over, then we could end up in, in a very sort of dark place. And I worry hugely about the Trumpization that you talk about, Anne, because <laughs> that is creeping into British politics. The, the sense that, that, that facts, truth and a sense of decency and civility no longer matter. Somehow that's a sort of a, a gentility that show, that means you're out of touch. I think that, that that's very worrying. Hannah, one of the things that I think we've seen with Donald Trump and we've seen probably to this lesser extent with Nigel Farage in this country, but is the way that people end up liking the person, even if they don't agree with the outrageous things they're saying it, but just because they're saying it and they're sticking it to the man. Yeah, I think the fact of saying the unsayable and, and people being used to that and inured to that through television and entertainment... I think people find those Hollywood-style characters far more, you know, down-to-earth, far more relatable than perhaps someone like Nick Clegg or David Cameron. Um, and, you know, it, it feels like at the moment we're, we're harking back to a, a period last year at the 2015 election, which was the normal. Well, now is the new normal. And, you know, it's, it's changed irrevocably. And I don't think we're going to see a return to that for a very long time. I think the leaders that come forward in, in the parties will, will have to be reflective of, you know, a, a more grasp roots idea of what government should be and that's precisely what Theresa May was doing in her conference speech she was speaking to the the left behinds Um, and it's interesting that you know we've been through a century where people have always sort of you know aspired to or people have have increasingly called themselves middle class and now we are coming into an era where it's actually a mark of I don't know you know a mark of um, sort of pride almost that um, people will say well I'm working class I'm of the people and you know my government that the government isn't speaking on my behalf and um, and I think that's you know that's the huge change that's coming. We've seen it a bit in recent weeks Anne where in Theresa May's conference speech she was uh, well in fact it was Amber Rudd's conference speech where she talked about this idea of listing foreign work how many uh, Mm. foreign workers were employed um, in a firm we've seen it in the uh, last week or so this idea of checking the ages of people claiming to be children who were coming over from Calais huge sort of liberal elite outcry at this and yet the polling shows the public are right behind it and there is that sort of very angry response which which we still get from the metropolitan liberal elites if you like which the polling suggests that the the public mood is still somewhere else yes and i i mean i have to say perhaps not entirely in touch with the liberal elite um you know the idea that you have to prove who you are um it's completely unsurprising to me and i and i think i have shown my passport to tons of people who I work for. And I just think that that's part of everyday life. You can't have controls and then just completely ignore who's working for you and saying that everyone's telling the truth all the time, because that's really not the way the world works. And the same thing for, you know, the the complete outrage about some people saying, hey, some of these child refugees may not be children. I think that's quite legitimate. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, when you get to the point where you're examining their teeth... I thought, you know, that was a classic, that was so classic, where you take one semi-sensible thing, which is to check the ages of the children who are coming in, or try to, then you move it to this sort of place where it just becomes kind of Monty Python-esque, hilarious. So, yeah, I mean, I just think we're in a very weird phase now where every idea is sort of, there's so much outrage about things. The the level of common sense is said to be decreasing to to a very small bit of the argument. And just, um, we obviously can't ignore the fact that you are from America. What's your sort of family and friends uh, at home? What are they making of the race? How it's playing out? It is quite strange because when you hear, everyone wants to talk to me about it. They're always, what do you think of the race? You know, can he win? Is, you know, can you believe it? Blah, blah, blah. At home, everyone is like, oh, we don't want to talk about that. Um, Oh, God, can you believe it? It have come to this. Let's not talk about it. 
I mean, literally. I mean, I was there to see my family for like three weeks. We had, I think, two discussions, and they were pretty much more or less all full of sighs and kind of things like. <sighs> but the thing that I think is true is that people, the people, are interested in this election. There's a real entertainment value that's going on here. I read somewhere that sort of American football viewing figures are down because people are like watching political shows and or the news. And I think that we don't want to miss that. Americans are quite interesting because they love uh, debate. They love facts. You know, the Watergate hearings were watched by everyone. Um, that doesn't happen here quite so much. And um, they, they like that sort of first-handness of seeing something with their own eyes. And um, I think that that is something that we also shouldn't ignore. People are interested. And that's not a bad thing. Does that give momentum to a character like Trump, who is far more watchable than Hillary Clinton? It does up to a point. Uh, well, listen, although, although your um, family friends don't want to talk about it, we, we are going to be talking <laughs> about it in a couple of weeks. We've got yes. a Times Plus event. So if you want to come uh, and... Uh, please just, do come. Exactly. Please do come. If you go onto the Times Plus uh, website, you can um, find uh, details on that. It's on November the 7th, the, the night before the um, US elections. Yes, and possibly, you can hear... possibly we won't be affecting the actual vote. No, I think, I think, it was, I think <laughs> by that point, people may well have... Uh, <laughs> uh, may well have made up their mind. Uh, but uh, li- we'll um, no doubt come back to it um, before uh, polling day as well. But uh, let's move on now. And uh, Lucy, you want to talk about the Labour Party? The past 12 months have seen rancour and destruction prevail in Labour, which has consequently plunged in the polls. So how does the party get back in the game? As the dust has begun to settle after Jeremy Corbyn's decisive second winner's leader, a nascent semi-functionality has taken hold. Keir Starmer has taken the helm of the shadow Brexit portfolio, while younger frontbenchers also seem to be settling in and scoring the odd hit on the government. Meanwhile, big hitters on the backbench, Yvette Cooper and Hilary Benn, have been elected to chair major select committees. Is Her Majesty's opposition starting to oppose the government again? We ran some numbers last week on Jeremy Corbyn's media mentions, because I was mm-hmm. sort of slightly conscious every morning when I'm writing the Red Box email, I was struggling to find a story about the Labour Party. And Tom Wills, who's our data guru on this, ran the numbers on it. It turned out Jeremy Corbyn was getting mentioned in fewer news stories than David Cameron, a guy who's been essentially out of work for four months. And so it feels to me a bit like the Labour Party, although it's slightly getting its act together, it's just at the point where everyone's (laughs) sort of now, they're sort of totally ignoring them and there's slight irrelevance. And how do they get back back in the game, do you think? Well, I think think what you say for a start is interesting about Jeremy Corbyn not getting as many news mentions. In many ways, that's progress for the party because, (laughs) frankly... Um, much of the coverage has the previous been ones negative all positive, yeah. um, in the past 12 months, um, since he first beca- 13 months now since he first became Labour leader. But I also sense there's just a slight shift now in the PLP that things are moving away from the, the sort of the cult of personality, everything being based on him. Everyone's heard his pronouncements on most topics now. He's had a fixed world view for decades. So, you know, we, we're pretty sort of firm in, in, in what... He thinks we know about that. Um, I've just noticed sort of a bit, a bit more of an uptick among sort of Labour spads. We ran a story today, great uh, Labour FOI about student loans company having to repay um, hun- several hundred thousand graduates um, that it wrongly clawed money from. That's a sort of policy story that, that Labour should really be kind of get, getting its uh, teeth into. And I think there is more movement going on there. Meanwhile, people seem to be settling in. Some of the younger characters like Angela Rayner, Clive Lewis, have been on the front bench for a while now, know what they're doing. And we've got some of the big hitters in. And I think that is going to start making a difference and, and making Labour seem a bit more credible again. Now, Anne, you're sort of slightly one step removed from this. After you, you, you're much better since you stopped having to follow uh, what was happening in the comments <laughs> yes. all the time. But do you detect sort of life still in the Labour Party? Oh, there's definitely life in the Labour Party. And I think the fact that um, Corbyn's got re-elected, basically, uh, means that everyone now realises they're stuck with him. 
you know, without being too rude, that is the way a great <laughs> many people in the Labour Party feel. I don't think this, this doesn't sound like a lefty loving now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people like Yvette Cooper, who I'm sure has her eye on the prize, she's thought, well, where can I, where can I still function within the Labour Party? And that's happening, Hillary Ban. And as you say... And they've, they've become... Yes, the select become chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee. Yeah. Hillary Benn's in the back. And that is, one. those are very powerful positions in terms of making news. And you can kind of make it what you want to. You can showboat. I'm sure Yvette won't be showboating, but you can showboat. <laughs> She's leaving that to her husband. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although I think, actually, Ed on Strictly has helped Yvette immensely, made her seem far more kind of human. human and <laughs> Human, yes. But saying the word human. And I think some of the... Uh, Keir Starmer... Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. He's been looking like a, a, a man with his eye on something else ever since he entered the Commons, in my opinion. So I think a lot of people are settling down, figuring out how they can make the next few years work for them. But I think there might still be a realisation that they might not be bound for glory in terms of electoral success. So use it for their own personal, raising their own profile or skills. And, don't, or... and also don't split the party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, Hannah, we've seen the the brilliant return of the Edstone to headlines um, because the Labour Party got into quite a lot of trouble because it didn't submit the invoices for the Edstone to the Electoral Commission. The Electoral Commission said, hang on a minute, this isn't quite right. So they investigated further. They found lots of payments that weren't properly declared. uh, And they've now been hit with the biggest ever fine for political parties, £20,000. But what struck me, looking again at those tremendous pictures of Ed Miliband standing (laughs) in front of the Edstone, is what an amazingly long time ago that seems. The the, the Labour Party felt like it was on the cusp of... Of, of being the government. That's right. I mean, it almost feels a bit like, come back, Ed Miliband, all is forgiven. Not for the many people in the Labour Party think that. Um, I mean, you know, I think... It, it feels as though a century has passed since then. And I think for um, a lot of Labour MPs, um, I don't think they're anticipating a return to, uh, you know, the kind of status um, that the party was in um, 12 months ago. But I, I do think that I've sensed amongst MPs a, a rallying round, um, if not of Corbyn, of the party in general, and trying to bring everybody back in the tent. But I think that, I mean, the great thing about the, the Edstone um, was that it was the classic sort of... Um, uh, stunt gone wrong, uh, and it sort of foreshadowed, you know, the the train episode with with Jeremy Corbyn. It just seems as though the Labour Party is inherently gaff prone, um, and that's not something that goes, you know, is missed by voters. But there's there's making a gaff where you make a split second decision sitting on a tra- floor of a train, and you slightly blur the line to accidentally <laughs> carve a fifteen foot concrete I, slab I can, well, you with your own signature is something else. Because as a sketchwriter, I I feel like I was there, although I wasn't there, I was just watching on TV, but it was on a Saturday. Yes. And it was in Hastings, in a car park of all places. And as I understand it, it you know, this was approved by several different committees. Several meetings. Coming yeah. up. And it, that just goes to show you how, I mean, one of Ed Miliband's faults without question was that he took 
advice from too small a group of people. And that's how incredibly out of touch they were. <laughs> and, and then, you know, I think that they almost got away with it. It really was one of those things I can remember trying to sketch it and really finding the local news reporter, like <laughs> some sort of slightly wobbly footage and stuff like that. And you sort of thought, wow, you know, they almost got away with it, frankly. I, uh, I remember when the story broke. Cause I think it was, initially it was in The Observer and I was trying to write it up uh, off the back of that. And I spoke to... Uh, Labour spinner and said, "You know, where are we going to see it?" And he, he said, "I really hope not." So he already knew that this thing existed, and because when, at that point there were no pictures of it, and so our uh, picture desk mocked up what it might have looked like in the Garden of Downing Street, where Ben was going to put it. And then we finally saw the pictures. It was even more ridiculous than the ridiculous mock-up that the, the uh, picture desk had managed to uh, Photoshop. Well, I love the, the, the logistical problems with it as well. It was so heavy being made of stone that they had to keep it in the car park, couldn't even bring it over to the venue that they'd arranged <laughs> because it would have sunk through the floor. And there was, there was a story that I've heard about there was a guy with a horse and cart who parked up behind it and wouldn't move until he was given an audience with Ed Miliband. It's a bit so like funny, a but biblical I, story, isn't it? You know, this great stone tablet that had to be moved by a, a horse and cart. Uh, yes. <laughs> but I, I, I have to say, I disagree with you, Hannah, that, that the Labour Party is somehow gaff-prone in a way that any other party isn't. Mm. I, For me, I think the lesson of the Edstone and being remembered of that incident today is just sort of, you remember that there is dysfunctionality under every mm. regime. Well, and, and also that, you know, while Corbyn does seem to lurch from disaster to disaster in, in, in many ways... That, 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 you know, things weren't perfect um, under Ed Miliband. You look, you know, talking to Tories now who are in the hinterland during IDS's reign, I mean, yeah. they never thought they would see the Conservative Party back in power. So what I stressed it was sort of semi-functionality, the sort of first um, flickers of light that maybe things will be calming down to some extent now. I just think we can't write Labour off, uh, you know, in, in sort of 10, 15 <laughs> 20 years. No, um, that's right. Perhaps there, perhaps there is a future there. I think before then. And of course, the, you can't ever rule out the possibility that the Tory party might implode, implode and kill Quite itself, possibly. as it has done in the past. Uh, well, let's, um, let's move on then. On the subject of parties um, imploding and uh, tearing itself apart. Hannah, you've been um, casting an eye over the UKIP leadership race. Yes, UKIP is in the grips of its second leadership race to replace Nigel Farage in a year after Diane James quit 18 days into the job. The race is already nuts, with one contender forced to explain claims his horse had been raped by a gay donkey, while another, Raheem Kassam, has had to apologise for outrageous tweets, including one about stopping Nicola Sturgeon from reproducing. But don't worry, he's only riding third in the polls. Now, I mean, it's joy of joys. Um, if all else fails, there's a UKIP leadership contest just around the corner. You've, uh, Hannah, you've interviewed Raheem Kassam for um, The Times. What did you... <laughs> I mean, he's a quite extraordinary individual. I mean, it's sort of attention-seeking... Donald Trump tribute act. Yes, exactly. I mean, his his slogan is "Make UKIP Great Again," uh, and that's no accident. <laughs> um, he is a former right hand man to Nigel Farage, uh, and uh, now moonlights as uh, the editor of Breitbart London. Breitbart uh, is a, a right wing uh, a, a sort of blog, um, uh, the home of libertarian thinking, as, as he would say. Um, he, I mean, he. Uh, Basically, obviously, when you stand in a leadership election, uh, the cannons come out and people start looking at everything you said. Unfortunately for Raheem, um, there is plenty of fodder, um, not least on his Twitter feed. Um, he has made uh, almost a cottage industry out of being a provocateur online, um, of provoking people um, and targeting um, particularly women. Um, I mean, you know, if I can just read the tweet, um, it's in very poor taste, but it, it's about Nicola Sturgeon. And to, to be fair to him, he did say it was before he knew um, about the, the very sad story about her miscarriage. But he 
he said, and you know, I did say, is this a relevant thing to be saying about a woman anyway? But uh, can someone just like tape Nicola Sturgeon's mouth shut and her legs so she can't reproduce? Thanks. Uh, it's it's not behaviour that you would expect of a party leader. Uh, then again, Trump is in the running to be, uh, you know, the next president of the United States. There is something faintly ridiculous, isn't there, Lucy? Between Raheem Kassam likening himself to Donald Trump, he did it at the weekend when uh, Suzanne Evans is also uh, running to be leader. Um, had a go, at, you know, had a go at him, and he said it was like Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables. Yes, comment about Donald Trump. Those two people. Whatever you think of either of them, are running to be leader of the free world, <laughs> not trying to cobble together what's left of UKIP being run out of a cupboard in Newton Abbott. I know, it's it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, yesterday, uh, Raheem also told Hannah that um, he might well contest the uh, the results of the UKIP uh, leadership contest. So they can have another Donald, one. Yeah. So if he doesn't Donald win, Trump he can contest has, it and they can have another leadership well, contest. Well, exactly. I, it's interesting, though. I mean, given that... That now it's Raheem versus Paul Nuttall uh, versus Suzanne Evans. Not really household names unless you're a sort of UKIP expert or or very kind of avid party um, voter or follower. I think, interestingly, the party does have a future because Labour has become so hollowed out in the North and to some extent the Midlands that there's a protest vote going there. Those people aren't going to go back to Jeremy Corbyn, um, who they see as very metropolitan, not, not someone who sort of they identify with or stands up for their values. They'd never vote Conservative, still a very toxic brand in those areas. There's not really much Lib Dem presence in, in most of them. So I think, fascinating, whoever wins, and, and, and remarkably Raheem is in with a strong chance, as you say, he's, he's um, quite a long way behind, but he's still, he's still third in the contest. The party is going to continue to kind of pick up votes. Yeah. Was, and, and the interesting thing with Paul Nuttall, who's former deputy leader, is he still deputy leader? I think he resigned. He resigned when, the, when, when the, the last time. The last July. time out. Yeah. Um, but we've uh, on uh, Red Box this week. We've had a poll done of UKIP councillors by Matthew Goodwin and Simon Hicks. They've got Paul Nutt on forty-two percent, Susan Evans on twenty-two percent, and then Raheem's on nine percent. None of these on is on eight percent, and then others are doing even worse. But it's sort of interesting that Paul Nuttall, who's northern working class, couldn't be further really from Nigel Farage's sort of uh, lunchtime pub sessions image. Um, but he's probably the one who's best placed for trying to pick up some of those northern working class folks in those Labour seats. I, I, I certainly think so. I mean, he, he sounds and, and, and sort of looks like those people. Um, and I think certainly with Nigel Farage um, and to an extent with Diane James, you know, being sort of, you know, sorry woman and, and, and facing that way. My sense is that UKIP's already picked up um, the sort of southern, all the southern Tory voters to the sort of right of the Conservative Party that it's going to. The real growth market is in the north, is among uh, is among Labour voters. But I think what we're going to see in this contest is the power um, is going to be tested of data and cash because Aaron Banks, the major party donor, has rode in behind Raheem Kassam. Uh, and given he's so far behind in, in your um, poll match you, you, you've just read out, I think it will be interesting to see if Aaron starts sending out his emails to his database, puts a lot of money in, whether that has much effect or whether or whether it's such a short time frame that the contest is going to be concluded by the end of November, whether there won't be enough time for that to have much um, now, and play. The truth is UKIP was basically Nigel Farage and mm. a plea to leave the EU. Without ease with those things, does it... Does well, it I mean, Survive? you know, I've seen, I have watched Nigel Farage from the start. And um, I mean, he did used to be Rahim ish. You know, he did used to say completely outrageous things on purpose about everyone. And that was his, that's how he operated. And then he decided about 
three years ago that the party had to get real. And he quit drinking quite so much in public. He threw out quite a few, Godfrey Bloom, as I remember correctly, the man that <laughs> sluts behind the fridge. He, he, you know, he, he threw out what he thought were the kind of bonkers people. He made it more professional. He, you know, and we all were there. I mean, it, you could really see the, the you, you could just see it falling apart sometimes. And he would literally practically single-handedly bring it back together. So... I don't dismiss anyone. I think Paul Nuttall is much more the new face of UKIP, which is uh, semi-serious, um, has a minor plan, actually wants to run something, uh, thinks it can run something. Um, I'm slightly surprised Diane James lasted 18 days, frankly. And um, <laughs> she never struck me as someone who really is going to have a grip on power very strongly. So um, I think it's quite interesting to see which way the vote goes, because don't forget the electorate in this election is not exactly normal mm. by any standard. <laughs> and so we really don't know who they're going to like. They're going to like the, the wild, brash guy who they want to have a drink with, or are they going to like the much more serious guy who's, you know, maybe not be a barrel of laughs, but um, they might agree with. And the, the striking thing, Hannah, in the most recent leadership contest that Diane James won, is she won despite not attending any of the hustings and apparently doing nothing to campaign towards it. And yet the... Um, <laughs> The uh, membership decided to inflict the job on him anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, quite. It, it was inflicted to the point where Lucy has seen evidence that it was uh, under duress on her nomination forms, um, you know, s- signed in Latin, almost in blood. Um, and I think I think the point here is that uh, Nigel Farage uh, is UKIP. Uh, it's, a, it's a question of whether or not um, some, you know, Paul Nuttall can be the unity figure. In Suzanne Evans, you've got someone who's very well media trained. She used to be a BBC radio presenter. Um, and she she wants to detoxify the party. She says she wants to occupy a common sense centre ground. And she accuses Raheem of trying to take it to the far right, which he denies. The issue is here, it's all very funny that, you know, one of the leadership um, uh, contenders, John Rhys Evans, um, was forced yesterday to explain quite why um, he'd made the claim that his, his stallion was raped by a gay donkey. I mean, all of that <laughs> is... That is classic, you, Kip. I yeah. mean, that is classic. <laughs> okay. yeah. that's, that, that's their flagship uh, law in order policies clamping <laughs> down on gay donkeys. Yeah, I mean, you know, Raheem was saying that he, one of the first things he'd do is that he would um, he would he would push for a referendum on the wearing of the niqab, but didn't think that that would be remotely socially divisive. Um, you know, we can laugh about it all we like, but they are third in the polls, and they polled second in about forty seats around the country in the last general election. So this isn't you know this isn't small fry, no matter how parochial the the contest is turning out to be. It's funny, um, you, you, you make me laugh, Hannah, with the, uh, just remind me of the policy pledges people are coming up with, a, a referendum on the NICAP. Let's not forget UKIP is currently headquartered in Devon. Yeah. <laughs> it's allowed as London yeah. head, headquarters offices lease to run out. It's hemorrhaged at least 10,000 members since the uh, general election, I understand, because it only takes check. Um, was only very recently introduced direct debit. Um, it, it doesn't remind people they have to kind of put in their own diaries when their annual subscription is up and sort of write in, you know, self, self-addressed self envelope or whatever um, to that new Devon uh, address. I mean, the professionalisation of the party has surely got to be um, the first priority of whoever wins this contest. Well, we'll see how it all pans out and who um, who gets to do it for the, for the next three weeks before they hand over to the next person. I think that's all we've got time for this week. Do remember to subscribe to 
to the Red Box podcast via iTunes on your Android device so it gets delivered to your phone every week. I hesitate to invite more reviews, but do post them on iTunes and uh, I'll read more of the best and worst in the coming weeks. Get in touch by emailing us redbox at thetimes.co.uk. You can tweet us at timesredbox or find us on Facebook. And if you want uh, my morning email uh, delivered to your inbox every morning, it's thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email. But for now, from Anne, Lucy, Hannah and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.